0: Alright, Wednesday, January seventeenth, uh, Data Protection Breakfast Club brought to you by our friends Tech G C. Here we are.
1: We are here. What's up, man? Hey, how are you? I don't know, man. Are we going to play some bets that this will be the most listened to episode ever? Let's do some gambling.
0: It's a pretty gambling, pretty gambling heavy episode. <laughs> it's a gambling. Uh, I, expe- type of I right. expected to talk. <laughs> I didn't expect uh, as much gambling, but it's actually something I know very little about. Same here. So I'm just super curious.
1: How often do we get somebody who knows all the things about this area? I mean, of what I we get into it in the conversation, but like, I've definitely seen gambling kind of come to the forefront as like a sanctioned you know, entertainment activity by governments and by companies and by sports uh, organizations. So, like, I think online prize-oriented games and online gambling were at the forefront of bringing this into the mainstream. And so, like, just a fascinating area that I honestly... (laughs) I don't know, man. I, I don't gamble. They broke I, ground. I mean, you gamble? I mean, are like so
0: DraftKings.
1: Are you a gambler? No.
0: no, I mean, no, no. For all the reasons you illuminate in the episode, okay, no. Yeah, yeah, but never... but that doesn't mean that I that you know I don't recognize as you noted that that it's fun yeah, for exactly. some people and some people have that they have the 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 ability and the the means to go do it and and fantasy sports are fun and I used to do that with my law school friends and. And and uh, but you know now life's different. Yeah. Uh, it's different for me. I played me, fantasy but sports many years ago. Not at all
1: now. But I remember when it was really primitive, and like the premier fantasy yeah. sports platform was Yahoo Sports. <laughs> I did it, Pedro. I did it before there
0: was a platform. Oh, you were doing it like so on paper I, and shit. I, in high school, in high school. Oh my! I used to go God. over to my friend. I would go over to my friend You're Brad's ancient. house. L- listen to this. I would go to Brad's house. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> not would not to be Brad, there. Bro. Shout out to Brad. Everybody would be there, and Brad's brother Ken ran it, and so, so I'm there, and uh, and there's uh, like twenty, fifteen of us or so, and and we uh, people had newspapers, dude. They had newspapers, nice. and they had like magazines, and it was uh, we would do an auction. Yeah, you guys were where we were like numbers. bidding. B- bidding on players and then this guy ken would stay up all night like doing the stats yes. once a month and just give everybody, it was the nba uh thing that that's we did intense, and it was man. old school
1: that's old intense school. man now my first experience was yeah. yahoo sports and I, I i actually this is crazy but the first year i ever played fantasy sports i won the league i think that might have been the only year <laughs> and here's what happened though i didn't really know what i was doing but uh This running back who had a pretty decent year the year before. You may have heard of him uh, when I mentioned his name. I was like, I'm betting my whole franchise on this guy. And I drafted him way earlier than anybody else would have. And then he broke out and had what I still think is the greatest fantasy football year of any player ever. And this was LaDainian Tomlinson. And he went for like 65 billion yards and 75,000 touchdowns that year. And I was just Destroying people every week in that league, like it wasn't even close. Like he was doing two hundred yard games. Like those were his slack days, you know. And three touchdowns. It was wild, man. It was a wild run. Lt shout out to LaDainian Lt Thompson. was
0: dangerous. He Lt the the second coming. Lt Yeah, uh, behind Lawrence Taylor, uh, he was on fire. He
1: was on fire for yeah. a couple of years ago, and I caught Great him that pick. first year where he exploded. And so, you know, shout out to Ladainian Thompson being the yeah. you know the hero of my online gaming From, lifestyle. Uh,
0: from tomlinson to perilla let's do yeah uh, we,
1: uh, we uh,
0: so speaking of on fire tim perilla the chief legal officer at link squares he was the gc at DraftKings. he's a uh, he, we're gonna get into it and, and i think people are gonna enjoy yeah, it Yeah,
1: and i think also like we're gonna get a little bit into contract management at the end of the episode which is like super legal oriented but like he's got some great insights about like what needs to happen for like law departments to get a little bit more efficient. And I, I really like the way he closed the episode out. So stay tuned till the end. Cause it was really good. Yeah.
0: One thing we didn't get to talk about is, is he's like, he pushes his out, outside counsel pretty hard in general. Like, and I, that, that's something that, uh, it, it comes out of the end, you know, the way he sort <laughs> yeah. of like pushes lawyers, pushes lawyers to, he's pushing them to be their
1: best. Yeah. You know? Good. Well, we need some of that. All right. All right. Here it is. Later.
2: Hey friends. It's me, Chris with tech GC. Wanted to let you know that if you're currently in-house counsel, need to wrap up all those CLE credits before the January 31st deadline, TechGC On Demand CLE is now available for all 50 states. If you're not a TechGC member yet, request an invite at TechGC.co, mention On Demand CLE and we'll fast track your request. Fulfill your CLE requirements with the most dynamic GCs in technology. Go to TechGC.co, request an invite. Now back to the show.
0: Here we are. Here we are. Hey oh, Tim yeah. Perilla, thanks for being with us, buddy. Good to see you.
2: Hey Andy, uh, thanks for having me. It's it's great. Really excited to do this. I love it, and uh, I
0: realized I I don't think I've ever introduced you guys before. And it's like one of my favorite things is to introduce two people that should have known each other for a long time. So I'm um, I'm glad about this. So it's good. Good to introduce you guys.
1: No, we'll be we'll become best friends in the next forty minutes. That's yeah.
0: Well, this has happened. This has happened Kindred. before. Uh, I'm drinking from my <laughs> Link Squares mug here. I can show for the camera. Oh, nice!
1: I've got. That oh, is a fancy little mug. I have a Link Squares like tumbler. I'm not sure where I got it, but man, I, I, I'm putting some miles on that fucker. So they've got they've got the CMO Juliet. So shout out to
0: Juliet. I don't know if she still does the swag situation, Tim. But like yeah, Link, Link squares, squares swag game is strong, solid, oh, very yeah. solid strong. swag game. Is yeah, that how you picked she's the company? Good. Is that how you pick Linkscores Squares
1: to go to? Yeah. Did you decide to work there for the swag?
2: That was it. I I met with uh, I've known Chris and I've known Chris and Michelle for probably since uh, early 2016, maybe even late 2015. Um, got introduced through a guy named Jeff Barclay, who's a patent attorney over at Fish and Richardson, and um, uh, and he was like. These guys are, uh, these, these guys are doing this AI startup thing. I thought you might be interested in it. And, um, I met, I met with them for, for a couple of drinks and, you know, kind of the rest is history. Uh, you know, fast forward five years, six years. And I joined, so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back in time. Even pre that, okay. uh, so you're G C of DraftKings before Link Squares. Yep. And I have a question about DraftKings. DraftKings is a b- beloved Boston success story. Yeah. But I guess like when you when you joined, Tim, like it was not certainly what everybody knows <laughs> DraftKings is now. So like okay. when you joined, it was just an idea, right? And so how did you go from there to I'm gonna be the first lawyer in and then
2: deal with the scale? Yeah. Good, good question. So I, so I started doing work with DraftKings, um, in late 2013. Um, this was right after they had raised, I think their series B, it might've been their series a, um, but they, they have like 15 employees in this one room office on winter street over in downtown crossing. And, um, I actually knew the CFO. Uh, and so he, the CFO and I had worked together through, um, uh, from like 2008 through 2013, um, at a company based in Cambridge that built software for online poker rooms and casinos through, uh, operated throughout Europe and the rest of the world, basically everywhere outside of the United States. And, uh, and they were, uh, DraftKings was looking at doing a deal with the world poker tour. And I had done several deals with the world poker tour during, during my time at Everest. And, um, and so he called me up and he was like, Hey, uh, you know, I was working on something else at the time. He's like, Hey, I know you got something else going, but do you want to, you want to help us out? We just need to, you know, need, need some of these contracts reviewed, just marketing stuff, people, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure. So it just kind of started that way. And then um, the work started picking up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And I ended up joining in um, March of 2014 as first in-house attorney. And a lot of it was just commercial work. Um, There's obviously like the gaming aspect of it, which having been in online poker and casino for five years before that, I had some familiarity with it. Um, But, you know, most of it was just commercial and then and fundraising for
0: what did you see in the what did you see in these guys though like in the founders and what did you see in like the idea because i think from the outside looking in like i don't know about you pedro but like when i saw DraftKings and and um and some of the like i feel like it was the first one i was aware of to come out and and i was like is this is this a like a business is it, is it viable? Like you obviously faced a lot of challenge and I was wondering like in that context, I'm like, how does this, how does this work? Is this like Yahoo sport, Yahoo fantasy sports, but with money, how is this going to work? Is this going to work at all? And then are these guys going to flame out? You know, and I think that's sort of like the, the big question.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, I think so. I, I, before I started working the world poker tour deal, it's so like my first deal I had a I had a conversation with Jason Robbins we met over at Scholars uh for a beer and um and he uh, if you haven't met Jason he's one of the most compelling people you'll ever meet in your life The you guys just uh can't say enough great things about him um but you could tell from that moment like if nothing else Jason was something different um you it's it's just kind of hard to describe. There was nothing that was going to get in his way, um, and the passion that he had for fantasy sports was was really really strong. The moral compass that he demonstrated during that conversation, making sure that he wanted to uh, wanted to do right from a legal perspective, he recognized there's some uncertainty there. Uh, I thought was showed a good amount of maturity. And, foresight, and um, you know, and ultimately at the end of the, at the end of the conversation, he was just like, so what's your hourly rate? And I said, Jason, I think, I think we could figure something out. I'm not sure an hourly rate is the best way to do that though. And um, he said, all right, cool. Well, let's figure it out. And so we, we ended up doing that. And um, I knew, so, you know, knowing the CFO, he had given me a little bit of inside, you know, inside baseball and what the company was all about. Um, you know, from, uh, fantasy sports has a lot of similarities to poker in terms of the way that it's monetized, right? Poker takes a rake, um, and you know, that has one set of issues, but more or less looking at a fixed prize pool for fantasy sports, um, you have, you either have overlay or you have the maximum amount that you're going to take out. And, um, and so, you know, I know that they had vetted it and the person that they had used was a guy named Tony Cabot out of Las Vegas. And for anyone who's in gaming, you know, the name Tony Cabot, he's been working in gaming since 1981, has worked with everybody everywhere around the world. Uh, um, yeah. Preeminent gaming lawyer, uh, uh internet gaming lawyer. Uh, He's now retired and he does a lot of metal sculpture work uh, in his, in his home, just outside of Vegas up in Summerlin. Um, But I mean, there, there isn't anybody better in the business than Tony and there hasn't been ever. So, you know, look, I, I, I called Tony and I asked him about it and he walked through some of the different issues and, you know, and, and and ultimately like uh, you, those, those regulatory issues don't become a problem until you become successful usually right uh I, Are you worried sure. about that
0: yeah <laughs> were you worried about that before it happened
2: uh was no. that on
0: your was it on your mind the whole time you know what I mean I guess I'm what, what I'm asking is was it on your mind the whole time you take the job and you're like there's gonna be a pretty significant regulatory hill to climb
2: uh, not? no not really um and maybe that was a little naive of me. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I really, I, w- I was very comfortable with and remain very comfortable with the legal position. And I think, you know, uh, every, every court that's tried it has found that we were correct in the legal position, yeah. most notably New York. Um, and you know, that like for, for me personally, that is something that I take a lot of pride in, like. You know, there there was pressure to sort of duck and cover when a lot of the regulatory stuff started happening and um, pull out of this state, pull out of that state. Everybody who sends you a letter, just get out. And, and I'm like, no, like we're right on the, the law is clear. We're right on the law. Like. If we pull out of these states, we're not going to have a business uh, that that's going to be viable. And we had just raised, you know, we had just raised a bunch of money. Um you know, from Fox and from some other financials, right in the summer of 2015, and uh, you know that, that would have that would have really buried our business if we just would have you know tucked our tail between our legs and ran away. Yeah. And so we didn't really have much of a choice. It's different if you're not confident on the law, but I had I had every bit of confidence that if put to a you know, a finder of fact, because whether something's gambling or not is a question of fact, not a question of law per se. Um, our, our facts were so strong, like so strong. Like, uh, so think about it this way. You take some of our successful players over a period of time, right? And you plot their results on a normal distribution, right? It's normal distribution curve. If it were based on pure chance, these people are the luckiest people on the planet. There's a better chance to that you that you would win the Powerball more than twice than having the outcome that these players had on a consistent basis over time. Right. And that is something that you just can't. You just can't with with facts dispute like that's just this the way the math works out. And then when you look at, you know, the I there's another way to look at it where it's like the idea of <clears throat> excuse me, the idea of like exercising skill, determining the outcome of the game. We would pit a skilled player with an unskilled algorithm, right? And we would we would basically run their lineups over time. We would run their successful ones and their unsuccessful ones. And you'd look at different um Like the amount that those skilled individuals would win would be upwards of 80% of the time. In some cases, upwards of 90% of the time. Right. Um, And so to say that's a coin flip or a lottery ticket or um, something like that is, it just isn't. Like,
0: it's interesting. It's interesting, though, like the difference between betting a game in Vegas, which is gambling as it's considered in Vegas against the idea of assembling a fancy team and, and doing it differently. The nuance between those two things, uh, that's an interesting dynamic to me. Those two differences.
2: Yeah. I think when you look at, when you look at the games in Vegas, you, you know, you, you think about like, for example, blackjack, right? Um, you playing optimal blackjack, you can reduce the house edge to something, but the house is, you know, something smaller, but the house edge is always present. Just like, you know, if you're playing craps, there's a house edge that's built in and you're playing roulette. roulette's a pretty easy one, right? If you, you have, you have the uh, 36 numbers on the table, right? And you have at least one zero. Sometimes you have double zero, right? And that's all along the wheel. And so, if you win on one particular number, you win 35 to one, right? Even though there's 36, 37, or 38 spaces. So that extra amount is the house edge, right? Can't really do much to move it. But um, when you're looking at, say, poker, for example, poker is a game where, there's, um, where there is not a house edge. There's just the rake. Right. And that's why a lot of jurisdictions have found poker to be a game of skill. Um, the reason why poker is not as clear as um, as fantasy sports is 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 twofold. Number one, you have the deal of the cards, which is a random event. Um, and two, you actually end up having. Um, uh, you end up having different aspects of the game that impact whether you win or lose that are separate and apart from the cards. Right. Um, If you, it would be a gambling game very clearly. If you just, everyone just flipped over their cards and your cards are your cards. Right. But when you're moving people off and on, it's a, you know, it's a different, it's a different beast altogether. But even then, a lot of States haven't bought that. It's that it's a game of skilly that I, I do think that it is. If you've played enough poker with people who are good and lost your shirt regularly, then you recognize that it's not just a flip of a coin. So, um, Pedro, do you
0: do fantasy? Do you do fantasy, Pedro?
1: Nothing. I don't play fantasy sports. I don't gamble. I don't go to Vegas. I don't play slots. I don't play cards. None of it. I listen, Matt, I work so hard for my money, I ain't giving it away to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not – I'm not That's leaving so my money rational. to chance. I, like, if it's I can't so... really – like, the thing about I, – I hear you on the skill set, but, like like, <clears throat> probabilistically, like, it's really difficult to anticipate outcomes in gambling or game scenarios. And so I prefer to stick to things where I can sort of, like – rely more on predictions over time right? than on who showed up at the table or, like, you know, what the rules of the game are that are changing. So, no, I don't play any of this. I don't gamble on sports. It's
0: interesting it. what you just said, Pedro. Like, when you talk about the the looking at things and making predictions over time, like, Tim did that with taking the job, <laughs> like, in general, and really every startup that somebody considers joining or anything where there's a new idea, right, or a new thing that you're taking on, it's sort of interesting. Like, it is a gamble in some ways, um, but it's just a completely different one based on the uh, inputs that you described, Pedro, more.
1: Yeah, I think, like, the difference between a gamble and an investment (laughs) is that you can look backwards at history and try to make an assessment about what's going to happen next. It's really hard to do at a slot machine (laughs) or at a poker table, in my opinion. Yeah. Because like, what who I sat with at a table last time isn't who I'm sitting at a table this time. The dealer's different. Everything's different. My my personality is in play. Like, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on there, man. I don't know. It's really maybe it's because I'm terrified because I grew up poor. But I'm I don't really put my money in scenarios where it can catch on fire. (laughs) It's not really uh really, but I do understand why people do it, and I see the appeal, and I see that it's fun. I I get that. I really do. And if I you know if I had just sort of like discretionary money to just toss around, I would, I, I'd be into it. Fantasy sports for me, the problem I have with fantasy sports is it's fantasy. That's the problem I have with it. Like I'd rather just go play pickleball or something, man. I don't know, man. I'm old school in that way, dude. I don't know, man. The closest thing I get to that type of stuff is like video games, like competitive Mario Kart. That's probably yeah. the closest I get there and the stakes there are nothing. They're basically feel good or feel bad, which I don't care about. The uh... do I sound grumpy? Is this me being grumpy about fun? No. <laughs> well, I love that you said. I love that you said I'd rather go play pickleball. I mean, that is like that is the opinion. I hate it. Well, by the way, like and the, th- the interesting thing about that is like last year I was like, I'm going to become a pickleball player and then it became so tedious and boring to me that I kind of hate it. But I'd still rather do that than set my money on fire. I get it. I get it.
2: Yeah, you can't you can't <laughs> walk into that situation expecting to win. Like any money that you put up, you should just expect that it's that that it's going to be a loss, and that you are. That, that's the right attitude.
1: That. That's the right attitude. That I like think if that's you, right. If you put up five hundred bucks in your, you know, in your, I don't know what it's called in your pot or whatever it is. Right. Um. That you've spent that money, and if you win some extra cash, congrats. If you don't, like, you had a good time. Exactly. It's the fun. I agree. If you look at it
0: like I am going to have fun. And that the cost of fun is the, this amount of money that I've set aside to have fun. It that's gets right. to be very I like different, fun and I'm gonna spend a thousand dollars
1: today having fun at the casino. Well, I think and that's I have why draft dollars to spare. That's draft a good Kings
0: plan. Uh, draft Kings is nice for that. Like the the sums aren't don't have to be large. So anyway, you can you can enjoy your fun uh, in whatever way you want to do it. But so Tim, I want to I want to get to the the end of the DraftKings story, like. Sure. The, I had a drink with you in Boston right before you were about to embark on this process. And I remember you mentioned a SPAC and I was like, I don't even know what that is. I've never heard of it. You're like, there's a holding company and something's happening. And like, and, and I was like, I think at one point I was like, but you're like, you're going public, right? <laughs> and you were like, yeah, yeah, but it's not so simple. And so how did you get up to, how did you get up to speed on that? How did you like, decide together this was the right call and then you know what was it like to go through
2: it yes yeah, the it's a good question it was it was pretty wild uh really so to be to be very clear the 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 short answer is the folks at you know diamond eagle acquisition corp which was the public which was the public company that ultimately bought um, DraftKings and um, uh, and SB Tech. Um, the folks that had originally thought of that um, and, and were looking to make that investment in gaming had worked with Jason um, on putting that, Jason and a couple of others, on putting that deal together. This was not a lawyer-led deal. Um, it was just an interesting way to, you know, to basically get your, get your company public and get some capital infusion um, and and get some efficiencies with it. And so uh, how did I get up to speed? Well, I talked a whole lot to outside attorneys. Um, and, you know, I talked a lot with the team to figure out, okay, what's the structure of, you know, what's the structure of the deal? Um, what do we want to get out of this deal? And from there, a large part of, a large part of the process is not that dissimilar to a normal, you know, a normal IPO. You're like the paperwork may have some different numbers on it. Um, you know, but it's more or less the same thing. Right. Um, a couple of odds and ends aside, I think financially it's a little bit more complicated, but legally it kind of is what it is. It's you think about it, like it's like a, it's a merger combined with an acquisition all in one transaction that just like instantly cascades all the way down and then all of a sudden you're public. Right. Um, which, which was pretty, I mean, it was a very cool experience. I mean, to, you know, to say that even today I understand all the nuances of it is, you know, would not be accurate. Um, I know some of the challenges that we had to overcome and, um, in actually making that transaction happen and i know how to anticipate some of those now and i think that's actually the bigger value than knowing the mechanics of the transaction itself um so but it, what was but
0: the what what was the celebration like i'm always curious about when people do something like that like is it uh <laughs> i don't know about you Pedro. like my mind goes to like wolf of wall street <laughs> like i think about like like uh, people, you know, dousing themselves in champagne and lighting on off- lighting an office on fire or something. I know that's not what happens, but my my mind goes there.
2: So that was definitely not what happened. Um, we went public on uh, April twenty something. I think it was like twenty second or twenty third. Might have been twenty seventh. I don't know when. Uh, twenty twenty. So everybody was remote. Because that was basically during the, you know, what was it? Two weeks that became the four weeks to slow the spread of COVID. Right. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, really there was, we got, everybody got on Zoom yeah. and like even Jason, Matt, and Paul were on, so like nobody was together and like, oh, congratulations at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And then you just kind of went on with your life. Um. You know, and, and you know, there's a little bit of like watching the share price that happened. But, you know, the employees are uh, like employees and early shareholders are all locked up for six months following it anyway. So no one's, no one's really transacting at that time. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, ultimately, DraftKings ended up the, the, the guys ended up ringing the bell after I had left. So uh. I... I left in March of 2021 and I think their, their big day on the floor ringing the opening bell was sometime in June of 2021. And, um, they all jumped on. So one of the, you know, one of the shareholders, uh, had a, had a private jet. So, you know, a handful of the the leadership, (laughs) jumped on a jet and they went to Las Vegas for, uh, for a couple of days. And I think, that, I think so that's I when it happened, much, much needed time to unwind. Got it. <laughs>
0: so, uh,
2: I, I will tell you that my, my wife and I popped a bottle of champagne and, and celebrated. It. So that was it's
0: so low key. Yeah. It's so low key. I mean, you know the I zoom
1: celebration. It. I wouldn't have
2: had it any other way though. <laughs>
1: Yeah. You know what's interesting to me about, now that we've been talking about gambling for 20 minutes, is how like, much it's proliferated and become mainstream. Like, particularly like, sports betting over the past couple of years. Um, like... My dog is participating in the podcast all of a <laughs> sudden. And thanks. Thanks a lot, Fed, Keanu. The we really FedEx appreciate it. But, person, uh, uh, the FedEx what do you think about there. that? What do you think about the proliferation of sports betting and how ESPN has taken a mainstream and now it's part oh, of yeah. like standard analysis when
2: they're talking about games and, and sports? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I can get in. Yeah. All right. I'm not going to get too far in depth here. I just got to kind of be. Uh, be thoughtful. Um, So obviously from, you know, from the summer of 2015 through today, um, between DraftKings and FanDuel and a couple of other partners, um, we engaged in a lot of, uh, a lot of advocacy activity at uh, state governmental levels um, to uh, pass bills that clarified the legality of fantasy sports and, You know, over the period of a couple of years, we were able to we were able to get laws passed clarifying paid fantasy sports um, as legal activity in 18 states, which is pretty remarkable. Um, That advocacy has continued um, and has moved into the sports betting realm in 2018. The Supreme Court overturned uh, PASPA, so the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, which was passed in 1992, um, that basically prohibited states from regulating sports betting. Basically, that paved the way for a lot of states to um, a lot of states to to regulate online gambling. Um, New Jersey was the leader, so uh, the challenge to the constitutionality of PASPA. Um, was brought by Chris Christie, the state of New Jersey, the state of New Jersey wanted to legalize online sports betting. And there were a couple of cases, Christie one and Christie two, um, that ultimately ended up going, uh, Christie two ultimately ended up going to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and so that, that really got the ball rolling um, uh, as far as, you know, as far as like true sports gambling is concerned, because anybody who has gambling, right um is looking to expand the gambling in their state so you look at nevada uh, i forget about tribal gaming for for a minute but really nevada and new jersey were the two most competitive states in terms of in terms of their gambling presence and um and so sports betting was a big competitive advantage for for nevada uh, Chris Christie wanted to bring revenue to the states. I mean, you know, he's got New York City, a subway right away. You know, millions of people can come right across the path and and start betting if he can get this working right. Uh, it's it's interesting. Like
0: if you state. if if you zoom out for a minute, like the fact that it's on ESPN, you know, or, or on they're talking about it so frequently, and I guess pedro i think i interpret your question as sort of like um like was that is that the case because states were like we need more money you know it's almost akin to or the ability to regulate something and make more money off of it it's like almost akin to to um marijuana cannabis right like the similar thing like the 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 dam breaks and there's just money to be made and there's just a business to be built around something it just was like, like
1: gambling you know like sports gambling has been around for 165,000 years right like so, you know, people been so has on... weed yeah. so has weed well yeah well that's what I'm, <laughs> but, but i think so 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 here here's my here's my my understanding of the last five or six years Ten years ago, let's go to ten years ago. Ten years ago, Las Vegas didn't even have a professional sports team. and the whole thinking by the leagues was we don't want a Pete Rose risk situation. This is this is what it was. Right now, Las Vegas uh, has an NFL team, and uh, all All Star games have been hosted there. Super Bowls will be hosted there. There's a Formula One race there. Uh, you know, there's all this talk about basketball teams. There's all this talk about baseball teams. All kinds of stuff is happening, right? And so, like, to your point, like, I think our tolerance for, like, gambling must have increased because these things are happening. Now, what's driving those changes? I don't think it's these, like, sweeping ethical enlightenments. I think it's, to your point. There's a tax basis there for the jurisdictions that allow it. That's obvious to me. If you regulate it carefully, you can tax the hell out of it. I think there's a lot of money for private enterprise to make. So, like, ESPN doesn't give a shit about Nevada taxes. ESPN gives a shit about viewers. And they realize that the people paying the most close attention to sports are betters. Like, this is obvious, right? And so... ESPN has a lot of incentive to cater to that audience they also yeah. did not for many years the incentive has always been there I think it's just the normalizing of gambling that has allowed ESPN to like be like all right cool we're just going to talk about it yeah. I think it's overall good what's interesting to me about it all and this is way off from like lawyering and stuff that we'll usually talk about here is well what about Pete Rose and what about the steroids guys right like like the you no know, pete rose i guess bet on a game and he's banned for life from baseball
2: and he always bet on. are his we own going team to not win. it's not like he was betting and he bet on his own team to
1: win yeah, like he bet he's... on himself to win that's like, right like at what point is that not a bad thing like what when do we what, why is pete rose still out of baseball I, I answer me that
0: he's muddy he's muddied the waters by being a huge asshole and I and I and that's just the truth. Yeah, of but it.
1: no, but come on, Cy Young is, a, is in the Hall of Fame, man. I agree. Like, you know, but like, there's
0: more media. There's more media now. Like there's more places for Pete Rose to show up. Know, like dude. no, like like um, Ty Cobb. If I'm Floyd one of the Mayweather, worst, if worst I'm Floyd human being
1: ever. <laughs> if I'm Floyd Mayweather and I'm fighting at the MGM Grand, okay, and someone's gonna punch me in my face, I should be able to bet. $10 million that I'm going to kick his ass. That, that, not not that, me being Floyd Mayweather. Floyd yeah. Mayweather should be able to – I can't kick Floyd Mayweather's ass. <laughs> but Floyd Mayweather should be able to bet on himself and say, yeah, I'm going to make whatever the purse is, but I'm also going to make all his other money because I'm going to beat this guy's ass. This is why I'm here. Why is that bad? Yeah. What is it, insider trading? Like what are we talking about here, man? Like this is the thing that I don't understand.
2: Yeah, I mean there's there, there's, there's, a lot there. I, to to a large extent, I agree with you. I don't. I don't understand. I don't understand some of the sensitivities around it. I think particularly what's what's gotten leagues cut. Co- so if the leagues were super uncomfortable with it, then they would just lobby against the bill. I, I mean, think that's right. Right, they lobby against the bill, but I think the the leagues became comfortable with it because you're able to you're able to acknowledge the reality that these pro like. Tom Brady gets paid so much money. How much money would you have to pay Tom Brady to throw a game? Right. How much, uh, like, if he's like, oh, I'm going to go place a bet at a Vegas sports book against the New England England Patriots for, I don't know, $75 million. The book would be like, that's strange. I'm not going to take that bet. Right. In In the height of Tom Brady's success. You see a seventy-five million-dollar bet come across your book, like the book's just going to be like, "I'm not, I'm just not taking that," right? Like something. I don't even does. honestly. Yeah, I mean, no. I, I
1: definitely see the. I see the quandary of athletes betting against their teams and themselves. That to me, yeah. that's that that's a clear problem, right? Yeah. Because it undermines the integrity of the game, but they get. I don't see how the reverse is true. I don't see how the reverse is true. I don't see how Tom Brady saying I'm going to win this Super Bowl, hey, I'm coming in here to kick these guys' ass, and I'm going to bet on myself and bet seventy five million dollars if that's what he wants to do. Yeah, compromises the integrity of the game.
0: It's a problem if he bets the over the under. Right. There's there's a lot. Yeah. yeah, There's a lot of problems.
1: I guess it is (laughs) a slippery slope, and I get it. But the same is true for what's happening now, right? Like it is like now. There's teams in Vegas. There's quote-unquote vice all around sports like there always has been it's just out in the open and it's a matter of time before the gambling controversies come some player <laughs> you know <laughs> is going to sabotage the game. like the ref remember that ref who was gambling a few years Tim, back in the Tim NBA Donahue. And, like,
0: Tim yeah, Donaghy there you go right, that
1: yeah. guy remember that guy like stuff like this is going to come back to light and it'll the question will be is whether or not like the legalization and normalization of betting is feeding that or not I bet you the answer is no I bet you Tricksters and fraudsters do trickstering and yeah. fraudstering no matter what. Yeah.
0: Let's go. Let's pause. Let's pause on gambling. We Well, let, let me it. ask a data protection <laughs>
1: question. Yeah. Let me, a, let me bring this all the ask way in. A lawyering.
0: Please ask a lawyering related question. Watch this.
1: No, but this is a good conversation, right? Like, it's a uh, good yeah. Conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But let me let, let me tie all this to some data protection stuff, which is how they, much transparency and how much privacy should you be entitled to if you're participating in like, Online games and online gambling activities, like like what what like are the thresholds there similar to like personal information? Are they like lower? Are they higher? Like, how do you see that space? Like the transparency around my Pedro's online gaming and gambling.
2: Yeah, so I think from a from a company custodian perspective, you uh, you are responsible for gathering a lot of information right because so um under the bank secrecy act casinos and gambling operations are considered to be financial institutions and so you have all of the AML requirements um that are placed on you um uh, just like just like at a bank right uh just like at Western Union so if you go and you create you know create an account at at DraftKings or at FanDuel or BetMGM or wherever they're going to ask you certain information. They're going to ask you to verify different things. They're going to go through, um, you know, I, I don't know as far as what exactly they're doing, they're doing today, but you, you know, you may have knowledge-based authentication that you need to do. Um, so they're, they're actually collecting a ton of, a ton of information about you just to verify you are who you are. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then, they're held to, you know, they're held to those standards. You know, it's, um, it's definitely something that is, it's, it's just as applicable in in gaming and gambling as it is in any sort of consumer tech business where you, uh, you've got to get consents for, you know, whatever a sale of the information is that, you know, that's always a big, that's always a big thing, particularly when you're like, Oh, I want to do a deal with, you know, so and so sports league. And anybody who signs up for this particular promotion, I can I share their information with that sports league so they can market to them. Right. Like what are what are some of the issues around that? And how are you getting the appropriate consents? So there's like there's that aspect of like, like, okay, how can we as a as a as a business, right? We DraftKings, we fanDuel, we consumer tech business. How can we share your information with marketing partners? Right, is that aspect, and then there's just the normal aspect of you have like social security numbers, you have driver's license photographs, you have all sorts of stuff that are already covered by a lot of the PII uh, laws that are out there.
0: Pedro, you say, were you asking sort of like if, bec- if by engaging in gambling activities, you have a different level of privacy protection
1: i I guess like look like just think about it this way medical data we think of that as like that and and and, and as like this like holy grail of protection right like that is the (laughs) most sensitive data about ourselves and we don't you know there's all these infrastructures frameworks legal frameworks technical frameworks to protect that data Financial data about like my income and my whatever, sort of at that same level of sensitivity, maybe not quite as high, but pretty close. I guess my question is like, where would gaming and gambling data fit in there? Because it strikes me as pretty sensitive. But then the like the public policy trade offs about keeping that information s- secret are different depending on who I am. To my it's point interesting, about sports, dude. yeah, like if, if really I'm just a private citizen betting on sports, nobody needs to know that. But if I'm a baseball player betting on sports, like there's some public policy reasons why the world would want to know what I'm gambling on. But right? actually, like
0: actually, what you said is intriguing because there's some, there's probably some perceived sensitivity if it came out that a person was a big gambler, and I think that is.
1: I think I, I could I think have an right.
0: impact on someone's life and it doesn't even really go down to the level of PII. Right. It's almost yeah, I like think that's exactly right. List, like if I was list. getting
1: a security clearance right, for the government, I think the government would be really interested in knowing I if I love to gamble, even if it's legit and lawful gambling. I don't mean like, you know, like I think the government would be really interested in knowing me as a gambler. And I think. A law school applicant that might be something that a bar is interested in. I don't know why I feel that way, but I, I think they would, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. I think I, I so when I think about like your gambling record, right? Like, oh, you know, Pedro's a big gambler, right? Um, when I think about that, I think about that actually as. as basically on the same level of financial transaction. Cause that's really like at the end of the day, it's probably what you're really looking at. Like if you're gambling a lot, Pedro, but you're gambling within your means, like I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know anything about your financial background for all, you know, for all I know, if I'm, you know, if I'm a bar association and, you know, there's some applicant coming out of, you know, coming out of, out of law school and, I see their DraftKings account and they're gambling, you know, a $100,000 a week. I have no idea if this person is a trust fund person. I have no idea their financial situation. But what you're trying to identify is whether there's the like, I think in a a government like security situation, like a security clearance, you're just trying to look whether somebody could be compromised, right? Is there some like, is, is there some lever somewhere separate and apart from, you know, separate and apart from the activity of gambling, that might indicate that they're susceptible to outside influence. Right? It's an interesting question. Though. Yeah,
0: people would make conclusions about that person. You know, about their what type of person they are potentially. Uh, before we Before we yeah. have to go, Tim, I do wanna, I want to I want want to cover Link Squares in uh, a, a little bit. So now yeah. you're now <laughs> now you're a CLO at Link Squares. This is a company that you were an advisor to. Uh, and and for a while um, uh, myself included uh, their Boston company so we we had the ability to meet them and understand what they were trying to build. Um, among their early customers, you know you were maybe maybe one of the absolute earliest customers. Now you're in as the yep. head of legal, but you also run a couple other functions at link squares. I think that was appealing to you. so talk us through like, yeah. What's it like there now? You're a, a little bit of a. It's a little bit later stage, and I can't even believe I would call it a later stage company, but I think it is at this point in terms of yeah. growth and, and revenue and um, time. Uh, so, what's it like there now?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's great. It's a ton of fun. Um, you know, we we have a largely in office environment, which is which is great. I know a lot of people got pretty used to working remote, um, but you know, we we do have uh, the majority of our st- of our staff in office at least three days a week. And, um, and it's, it's just a ton of fun. Um, so just from like a work environment and atmosphere, there's that energy, that excitement, that, you know, that drive that makes working at startups a lot of fun. Um, from my perspective, I, you know, I, I really do like the, you know, the diversity and disciplines of the role, um, you know, I oversee IT operations and uh the people function in addition to legal. And the overwhelming majority of my day is actually not on legal issues uh per se. Uh, the legal work here is, as I'm sure you can imagine, relatively um relatively vanilla. It's pretty stra- straight straightforward, right? It's a SaaS company. Um, you know, we have the occasional venture financing and uh you know, we kind of go on go on with our lives and, you know, deal with issues as we need to. Um, what really gets me, gets me excited about being here is what, what we're trying to do. Like, I'm sure you all have seen CLM like really kind of explode over the last, particularly the last two years, I'd say it, where the buyers have become a lot more educated about what's out in the market where the expectation on a legal department is that you do have some sort of a contract management system Um, where, so CLM is a good space. It's competitive. It's fun. You, and you are making a meaningful difference. What I really like about LinkSquare is though is where you know where we're heading. Our new product is more of a project management product. So if you think about what the benefits are of CLM, you have it, I, I I phrase it like this: it's just consistency.
1: For everyone listening, what is CLM?
2: Oh, uh, contract I- lifecycle management software. Um, what what CLM does is it provides consistency to your contracting process. It's consistency in terms of process itself, consistency in terms of quality and consistency in the way that you communicate what's going on with your contracts to the business. And, you know, there's really, there's really a couple of parts to that. There's, you know, there's workflow, there's, um, you know, some workflow of functionality, then there's, um, the visibility, enhanced visibility that you can give to the business through the access to the platform. And then there's um, there's the ability to recognize within your contract portfolio where your risk tolerances have changed over time or where maybe one contract is relative to your others um, you know, in the drafting process uh, from a risk perspective. Um, there's no reason that the rest of the legal work that the team that a team does shouldn't fit those same standards. I'm sure you both have been in organizations where business people will do what I like to call forum shopping, where they're like, I don't like what that attorney said, so I'm gonna go to that person, right? Um, That's actually a really, really bad thing for a legal department. I I think if there's nothing else that you should be doing and thinking about as an in-house leader, it's how do I create a consistent product for the business, right? I'm not saying that there aren't nuances that would change decisions one way or another. There are, but your your approach should be consistent and it should be an approach that's easily communicated to the business. Um, the way that you evaluate your attorneys across the team and their skill sets, you got to make sure it's consistently at a high level. You have to be a, a good lawyer. Your advice has to be good. It has to be well thought through. You have to do your due diligence. But being able to... Hold all of your attorneys accountable for doing that every single time is also really important. So absent standing over them are looking at post-it notes or Excel spreadsheets or, you know, uh, you know, the, their own like little slack area. That's notes to me. It's really hard to keep track of what people are doing. You think about it, uh, how, you know, law firms have this, have this issue too, but they've solved it. And they haven't, they haven't solved it through a build hour perspective. They solved it through checklists. They've solved it through process that they say, all right, if you're undergoing some MA transaction, you're approaching it in the same way. I'm sure, you know, you guys are privacy experts when you're, when you're hit with a privacy problem, there's something, some mental, whether you've actually written it down or not, there's some mental thing, mental set of steps that you're all going through and you're going to do that the same way. It doesn't mean your results going to be the same, but your approach is going to factor in all of these things and being able to use software to help streamline that and help standardize some of those things that are consistent is, um, is I think really the next, the next level in changing the way that legal teams operate. So, you know, when, when you think about, when you think about the best software in the world, um, the best software, the best products in the world, generally speaking, change the way that people act. They don't necessarily do things for people. Right. I mean, you can, you can say, all right, the assembly line put blacksmiths out of business and there are now machines that hammer steel into flat sheets. Okay. So there bring is
1: blacksmiths oh, back, man. Was that bring the blacksmiths back? Man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, <laughs> but but you know at, at the at the heart of it you think about the iPhone probably one of the most revolutionary products that that has ever uh, occurred in modern history right that literally changed the way we do everything in our day-to-day lives right changed the way we order food changed the way we talk to people or communicate with people changed the way we i mean People don't even know how to use a map these days, right? They got something on their phone, right? It, it changes the way that people operate, the way that people think, the way that people communicate and what, you know, what we're doing with Prioritize or our new project management software is we want legal teams to change the way that they work. They need to put software at the heart of what they're doing because the end result that you get when you do that is going to be better. Right. If you use it, you put the after I in.
1: wish you guys a lot of luck because I agree with everything you just said, which is like the like software ha- plays this interesting role where it can create optimal efficiency and allow people like lawyers, for example, to focus on the law and not on the management of documents. I have seen in law more resistance to technology adoption than in any profession I interact with. And I don't understand why that is the case. One of my theories is that lawyers are ingrained to look backwards for answers. That is what the practice of law is, is looking back to precedent and deciding what some other guy said and are trying to apply that in the present or future or undermining what someone else said. That's not really how software works. You have to experiment into the blind and train yourself on something completely new for it to actually give you the benefits that it promises. I hope you guys are successful because having been on the legal commercial side for many years before I pivoted fully to policy, the biggest challenge consistently was a finding stuff, b managing stuff and c sort of like tracking updates over time, which is what your tools do really well. If used correctly, That, that little speech leads to a question, which is AI I feel can take a lot of the learning curve out of all of this for the lawyers that are resistant for whatever reason. How are you guys integrating AI into all of this to make
2: it easier to adopt? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. AI definitely is is you know something that's been at the heart of LinkSquare since the beginning. Um, you know, our our very first product, Analyze, used AI to pull out you know uh, over a hundred extractions automatically. Right, you upload your contracts; these these different data points are are pulled out. It doesn't need to be trained on your contracts or anything. Just comes out of the box like that, well, but you know, I think you know when you start talking, to, and probably what you're referring to is more of the generative AI side. Um, you know that for us is um, you know we we actually just put out a press release uh, yesterday, maybe it was maybe it was the day before, Um we're, we're coming out with um, AI uh, AI redlining for contracts, uh, and we're also for, for the project management tool, um, like task suggestions. So like, let's say, let's say you get a request for an H1B, it will like recognize that it's an H1B request and it'll start suggesting different types of steps and different types of things that you want to understand when you're going to get an H1B for one of your employees, or if you're reviewing a television commercial or, or whatever it may be, right? Pick the legal issue, the AI will start suggesting um, tasks that are related to that particular project and say you may want to check this you may want to check that you may want to check the next thing um, and and we're also uh, we're also going to be coupling all of this with uh, with large language models and machine learning um, where you know instead of just using like a like a, a chat GPT or something like that where like now all of a sudden you know, your legal issues are also being run against like chocolate chip cookie recipes on the internet, right? It's like specifically like, um, designed off of data that's relevant to what you're trying to do. Right. So you get the combination of both. And I think it's going to end up as a really compelling product. It's got a, it's got a
0: good shot for sure.
1: I hope yeah. you succeed. I hope you guys succeed. I really <laughs> do. It'll make our
2: whole world so much easier. All right, Tim, we got the, you... the, the biggest. The yeah. biggest.
0: Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go
2: ahead. I was, was going to say the biggest barrier, the biggest, the biggest question mark in that is is what you brought up, Pedro, is that resistance to um, that resistance to adoption, and I think lawyers just need to grow up. Like think of any other software job, like when you're at a law firm, you had to learn the billing software. Congratulations, you learned the billing yeah. software. And then you said, I don't want to ever do that. And it's like, well, yeah, we're not asking you to bill your hours because it's not the software that's the problem. It's actually keeping track of your hours. That's the pain in the butt. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. And yeah. and here it is. It's like, if you want that end outcome, then you need to use the software. If you don't and you want your same disorganized, whatever it is that you run your department and think it's okay, then keep doing what you're doing. Don't even bother picking up the phone when a CLM company calls you or when anybody calls you, because you're never going to change if you're not willing to. If you're not willing to change your process, then don't waste your money.
0: I love that. Really, I love that. I like that Grow up. That's I love that.
1: Grow up, and if you're not willing to change, keep your money <laughs> in your pocket.
2: That's
0: right. All right, all right, Tim. What we, we
2: thanks,
0: thanks for me. Thanks for coming on.